0: Chapter 25 Brother Ananta and Sister Nalini Ananta cannot live. The sands of his karma for this life have run out. These inexorable words reached my inner consciousness as I sat one morning in deep meditation. Shortly after I had entered the Swami order, I paid a visit to my birthplace, Gorakhpur. As the guest of my elder brother, Ananta, a sudden illness confined him to his bed. I nursed him lovingly. The solemn inward pronouncement filled me with grief. I felt that I could not bear to remain longer in Gorakhpur, only to see my brother removed before my helpless gaze. Amidst uncomprehending criticism from my relatives, I left India on the first available boat." It cruised along Burma and the China Sea to Japan. I disembarked at Kobe, where I spent only a few days. My heart was too heavy for sightseeing. On the return trip to India, the boat touched at Shanghai. There, Dr. Misra, the ship's physician, guided me to several curio shops, where I selected various presents for Sri Yukteswar and my family and friends. For Ananta, I purchased a large carved bamboo piece. No sooner had the Chinese salesman handed me the bamboo souvenir than I dropped it on the floor, crying out, I have bought this for my dear dead brother. A clear realisation had swept over me that his soul was just being freed in the infinite. The souvenir was sharply and symbolically cracked by its fall. Amidst sobs, I wrote on the bamboo surface, for my beloved ananta now gone my companion the doctor had been observing me with a sardonic smile save your tears he remarked why shed them until you're sure he's dead when our boat reached calcutta dr misra again accompanied me my youngest brother bishnu was waiting to greet me at the dock i know ananta has departed this life i said to bishnu before he had time to speak Please tell me, and the doctor here, when Ananta died. Bishnu named the date, which was the very day that I had bought the souvenirs in Shanghai. Look here, Dr. Misra ejaculated. Don't let any word of this get around. The professors will be adding a year's study of mental telepathy to the medical course, which is already long enough. Father embraced me warmly as I entered our home. You have come, he said tenderly. Two large tears dropped from his eyes. Ordinarily undemonstrative, he had never before shown me these external signs of affection. Outwardly the grave father, inwardly he possessed the melting heart of a mother. In all family affairs he played this dual parental role. Soon after Ananta's passing, my younger sister... Nalini was brought back from death's door by a divine healing. Before relating the story, I will refer to a few phases of our earlier life. The childhood relationship between Nalini and me had not been of the happiest nature. I was very thin, she was thinner still. Through an unconscious motive that psychologists will have no difficulty in identifying, I would often tease my sister about her appearance— her retorts would be equally imbued with the callous frankness of extreme youth. Sometimes mother would intervene, temporarily ending the childish quarrels by a gentle box on my ear as the elder ear. After her school years were over, Nalini was betrothed to Dr. Panchanon Bose, a likeable young physician of Calcutta. Elaborate marriage rites were celebrated in due time. On the wedding night I joined the large, jovial group of relatives in the living-room of our Calcutta home. The bridegroom was leaning on an immense gold-brocaded pillow, with Nalini at his side. A gorgeous purple silk sari could not, alas, wholly hide her angularity. I sheltered myself behind the pillow of my new brother-in-law and grinned at him in friendly fashion. He had never seen Nalini until the day of the nuptial ceremony, when he finally learned what he was getting in the matrimonial lottery. Feeling my sympathy, Dr. Bose pointed unobtrusively to Nalini and whispered in my ear, "'Say, what's this?' "'Why, doctor,' I replied, "'it is a skeleton for your observation.' As the years went on, Dr. Bose endeared himself to our family, who called on him whenever illness arose. "'He and I became fast friends, often joking together, "'usually with Nalini as our target. "'It is a medical curiosity,' my brother-in-law remarked to me one day. "'I have tried everything on your lean sister, "'cod-liver oil, butter, malt, honey, fish, meat, eggs, tonics. "'Still she fails to bulge even one hundredth of an inch.' "'A few days later,' I visited the Bose home. My errand there took only a few minutes. I was leaving unnoticed, I thought, by Nalini. As I reached the front door, I heard her voice, cordial but commanding Brother, come here. You are not going to give me the slip this time. I want to talk with you. I mounted the stairs to her room. To my surprise, she was in tears. Dear brother, she said. Let us bury the old hatchet. I see that your feet are now firmly set on the spiritual path. I want to become like you, in every way. She added, hopefully, You are now robust in appearance. Will you help me? My husband does not come near me, and I love him so dearly. But my chief desire is to progress in God-realisation, even if I must remain thin and unattractive. My heart was deeply touched at her plea. Our new friendship steadily progressed. One day she asked to become my disciple. Train me in any way you like. I put my trust in God instead of tonics. She gathered together an armful of medicines and poured them down a drain outside her window. As a test of her faith, I asked her to omit from her diet all fish, meat and eggs. After several months during which Nalini had strictly followed the various rules I had outlined and had adhered to her vegetarian diet in spite of numerous difficulties, I paid her a visit. Sis, you have been conscientiously observing the spiritual injunctions. Your reward is near. I smiled mischievously. How plump do you want to be? As fat as our aunt, who hasn't seen her feet in years? No, but I long to be as stout as you are. I replied solemnly, By the grace of God, As I have spoken truth always, I speak truly now. Through the divine blessings, Your body shall verily change from today. In one month, It shall have the same weight as mine. These words from my heart found fulfillment. In thirty days, Nalini's weight equaled mine. The new roundness gave her beauty. Her husband fell deeply in love. Their marriage, begun so inauspiciously, turned out to be ideally happy. On my return from Japan, I learned that during my absence, Nelini had been stricken with typhoid fever. I rushed to her home and was aghast to find her extremely emaciated. She was in a coma. My brother-in-law told me, before her mind became confused by illness, she often said, ''If Brother Mukunda were here,'' I would not be faring thus. He added tearfully, The other doctors and I see no ray of hope. After her long bout with typhoid, blood dysentery has now set in. I tried to move heaven and earth with my prayers. Engaging an Anglo-Indian nurse, who gave me full cooperation, I applied on my sister various yoga methods of healing. The blood dysentery vanished. But Dr. Bose shook his head mournfully. She simply has no more blood left to shed. She will recover, I replied stoutly. In seven days her fever will be gone. A week later I was thrilled to see Nalini open her eyes and gaze at me with loving recognition. From that day her recovery was swift. Although she regained her usual weight, she bore one sad scar of her nearly fatal illness. Her legs were paralysed. Indian and English specialists pronounced her a hopeless cripple. The incessant war for her life that I had waged by prayer had exhausted me. I went to Serampore to ask Sri Yukteswar's help. His eyes expressed deep sympathy as I told him of Nalini's plight. "'Your sister's legs will be normal at the end of one month,' he added." let her wear, next to her skin, a band with an unperforated two-carat pearl, held on by a clasp. I prostrated myself at his feet, with joyful relief. "'Sir, you are a master. Your word that she will recover is enough, but if you insist, I will immediately get her a pearl.' My guru nodded. "'Yes, do that.' He went on to describe correctly— the physical and mental characteristics of Nalini, whom he had never seen. "'Sir,' I inquired, "'is this an astrological analysis? "'You do not know her birthday or hour?' Sri Yukteswar smiled. "'There is a deeper astrology, "'not dependent on the testimony of calendars and Clocks. "'Each man is a part of the Creator, or cosmic man. "'He has a heavenly body, as well as one of earth.' The human eye sees the physical form, but the inner eye penetrates more profoundly even to the universal pattern of which each man is an integral and individual part. I returned to Calcutta and purchased a pearl for Nalini. A month later, her paralysed legs were completely healed. Sister asked me to convey her heartfelt gratitude to my guru. He listened to the message in silence. But as I was taking my leave he made a pregnant comment your sister has been told by many doctors that she can never bear children assure her that within a few years she will give birth to two daughters some years later to Nalini's joy she bore a girl and in a few more years another daughter chapter 26 the science of Kriya Yoga, the science of Kriya Yoga mentioned so often in these pages, became widely known in modern India through the instrumentality of Lahiri Mahashai, my Guru's Guru. The Sanskrit root of Kriya is Kri, to do, to act and react. The same root is found in the word Karma, the natural principle of cause and effect. Kriya Yoga is thus union, yoga, with the infinite through a certain action or right, Kriya. A yogi who faithfully practices the technique is gradually freed from karma or the lawful chain of cause-effect equilibriums. Because of certain ancient yogic injunctions, I may not give a full explanation of Kriya Yoga in a book intended for the general public. The actual technique should be learned from an authorised, Kriyaban, Kriya Yogi, of Self-Realisation Fellowship, Yogoda Satsanga Society of India. Here a broad reference must suffice. Kriya Yoga is a simple, psychophysiological method by which human blood is decarbonated and recharged with oxygen. The atoms of this extra oxygen are transmuted into life current to rejuvenate the brain and spinal centres. By stopping the accumulation of venous blood, the yogi is able to lessen or prevent the decay of tissues. The advanced yogi transmutes his cells into energy. Elijah, Jesus, Kabir, and other prophets were past masters in the use of Kriya, or a similar technique, by which they caused their bodies to materialize and dematerialize at will. Kriya is an ancient science. Lahiri Mahasaya received it from his great guru, Babaji, who rediscovered and clarified the technique after it had been lost in the Dark Ages. Babaji renamed it simply Kriya Yoga. The Kriya Yoga that I am giving to the world through you in this 19th century, Babaji told Lahiri Mahashai, is a revival of the same science that Krishna gave millenniums ago to Arjuna and that was later known to Patanjali and Christ and to St. John, St. Paul and other disciples. Kriya Yoga is twice referred to by Lord Krishna, India's greatest prophet, in the Bhagavad Gita. One stanza reads, Offering the inhaling breath into the exhaling breath, and offering the exhaling breath into the inhaling breath, the yogi neutralizes both breaths. Thus he releases prana from the heart and brings life force under his control. The interpretation is the yogi arrests decay in the body by securing an additional supply of prana, life force, through quieting the action of the lungs and heart. He also arrests mutations of growth in the body by control of apana, eliminating current. Thus neutralizing decay and growth, the yogi learns life-force control. Another Gita stanza states that meditation expert Muni becomes eternally free who, seeking the supreme goal, is able to withdraw from external phenomena by fixing his gaze within the mid-spot of the eyebrows and by neutralizing the even currents of prana and apana that flow, within the nostrils and lungs, and to control his sensory mind and intellect, and to banish desire, fear and anger. Krishna also relates that it was he, in a former incarnation, who communicated the indestructible yoga to an ancient illuminato, Vivasvat, who gave it to Manu, the great legislator. He, in turn, instructed Ishvaku, the founder of India's solar warrior dynasty. Passing thus from one to another, the royal yoga was guarded by the rishis until the coming of the materialistic ages. Then, because of priestly secrecy and man's indifference, the sacred law gradually became inaccessible. Kriya Yoga is mentioned twice by the ancient sage Patanjali foremost exponent of yoga, who wrote, Kriya Yoga consists of body discipline, mental control, and meditating on OM. Patanjali speaks of God as the actual cosmic sound of OM that is heard in meditation. OM is the creative word, the whir of the vibratory motor, the witness of divine presence. These things, saith the AMEN, THE FAITHFUL AND TRUE WITNESS THE BEGINNING OF THE CREATION OF GOD REVELATIONS 3.14 IN THE BEGINNING WAS THE WORD AND THE WORD WAS WITH GOD AND THE WORD WAS GOD ALL THINGS WERE MADE BY HIM THE WORD OR Om, AND WITHOUT HIM WAS NOT ANYTHING MADE THAT WAS MADE JOHN 1.1-3 OM of the Vedas became the sacred word HOM of the Tibetans, AMIN of the Muslims, and AMEN of the Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, Jews, and Christians. Its meaning in Hebrew is sure, faithful. Even the beginner in yoga may soon hear the wondrous sound of OM. Through this blissful spiritual encouragement, he becomes convinced that he is in communion with supernal realms. Patanjali refers a second time to the Kriya technique or life-force control thus. Liberation can be attained by that pranayama which is accomplished by disjoining the course of inspiration and expiration. St. Paul knew Kriya Yoga or a similar technique, by which he could switch life-currents to and from the senses. He was therefore able to say, I protest by our rejoicing, which I have in Christ. I die daily. By a method of centering inwardly all bodily life-force, which ordinarily is directed only outwardly to the sensory world, thus lending it a seeming validity, St. Paul experienced daily a true yoga union with the rejoicing, bliss of the Christ consciousness. In that felicitous state, he was conscious of being dead, to or freed from sensory delusions, the world of Maya. In the initial states of God communion, sabhikalpa samadhi, the devotee's consciousness merges in the cosmic spirit his life force is withdrawn from the body, which appears dead, or motionless and rigid. The yogi is fully aware of his bodily condition of suspended animation. As he progresses to higher spiritual states, nirvikalpa samadhi, however, he communes with God without bodily fixation, and in his ordinary waking consciousness, even in the midst of exacting worldly duties. Kriya yoga is an instrument through which human evolution can be quickened. Sri Yukteswar explained to his students, the ancient yogis discovered that the secret of cosmic consciousness is intimately linked with breath mastery. This is India's unique and deathless contribution to the world's treasury of knowledge. The life force, which is ordinarily absorbed in maintaining heart action, must be freed for higher activities by a method of calming and stilling the ceaseless demands of the breath. The Kriya Yogi mentally directs his life energy to revolve upward and downward around the six spinal centres, medullary, cervical, dorsal, lumbar, sacral and coccygeal plexuses which correspond to the twelve astral signs of the zodiac, the symbolic cosmic man. One half-minute of revolution of energy around the sensitive spinal cord of man effects subtle progress in his evolution. That half-minute of Kriya equals one year of natural spiritual unfoldment. The astral system of a human being with six, twelve by polarity, inner constellations revolving around the sun of the omniscient spiritual eye, is interrelated with the physical sun and the twelve zodiacal signs. All men are thus affected by an inner and an outer universe. The ancient Rishis discovered that man's earthly and heavenly environment, in a series of twelve-year cycles, push him forward on his natural path. The scriptures aver that man requires a million years of normal, diseaseless evolution to perfect his human brain and attain cosmic consciousness. One thousand Kriyas, practised in eight and a half hours, gives the yogi, in one day, the equivalent of one thousand years of natural evolution. Three hundred and sixty-five thousand years of evolution in one year. In three years, a Kriya yogi can thus accomplish by intelligent self-effort the same result that nature brings to pass in a million years. The Kriya shortcut, of course, can be taken only by deeply developed yogis. With the guidance of a guru, such yogis have carefully prepared their body and brain to withstand the power generated by intensive practice. The Kriya beginner employs his yogic technique only 14 to 24 times, twice daily. A number of yogis achieve emancipation in 6 or 12 or 24 or 48 years. A yogi who dies before achieving full realisation carries with him the good karma of his past Kriya effort. In his new life he is naturally propelled towards his infinite goal. The body of the average man is like a 50-watt lamp which cannot accommodate the billion watts of power roused by an excessive practice of Kriya. Through gradual and regular increase of the simple and foolproof methods of Kriya, man's body becomes astrally transformed day by day and is finally fitted to express the infinite potentials of cosmic energy, which constitutes the first materially active expression of spirit. Kriya Yoga has nothing in common with the unscientific breathing exercises taught by a number of misguided zealots. Attempts to hold breath forcibly in the lungs are unnatural and decidedly unpleasant. Kriya practice, on the other hand, is accompanied from the very beginning by feelings of peace and by soothing sensations of regenerative effect in the spine. The ancient yogic technique converts the breath into mind-stuff, By spiritual advancement, one is able to cognize the breath as a mental concept, an act of mind, a dream breath. Many illustrations could be given of the mathematical relationship between man's respiratory rate and the variations in his states of consciousness. A person whose attention is wholly engrossed, as in following some closely-knit intellectual argument or in attempting some delicate or difficult physical feat, automatically breathes very slowly. Fixity of attention depends on slow breathing. Quick or uneven breaths are an inevitable complement of harmful emotional states. Fear, lust, anger. The restless monkey breathes at the rate of 32 times a minute, in contrast to man's average of 18 times. The elephant, tortoise, snake and other creatures noted for their longevity have a respiratory rate that is less than man's. The giant tortoise, for instance, which may attain the age of 300 years, breathes only four times a minute. The rejuvenating effects of sleep are due to man's temporary unawareness of body and breathing. The sleeping man becomes a yogi. Each night he unconsciously performs the yogic rite of releasing himself from bodily identification and of merging the life-force with healing currents in the main brain region and in the six sub-dynamos of his spinal centers. Unknowingly, the sleeper is thus recharged by the cosmic energy that sustains all life. The voluntary yogi performs a simple, natural process consciously, not unconsciously, like the slow-paced sleeper. The kriya yogi, uses his technique to saturate and feed all his physical cells with undecayable light and thus to keep them in a spiritually magnetized condition. He scientifically makes breathing unnecessary and does not enter, during his hours of practice, the negative states of sleep, unconsciousness or death. In men under Maya or natural law, the flow of life energy is toward the outer world, The currents are wasted and abused in the senses. The practice of Kriya reverses the flow. Life-force is mentally guided to the inner cosmos and becomes reunited with subtle spinal energies. By such reinforcement of life-force, the yogi's body and brain cells are renewed by a spiritual elixir. Through proper food, sunlight and harmonious thoughts, men who are led only by nature and her divine plan will achieve self-realisation in a million years. Twelve years of normal, healthful living are required to effect even slight refinements in brain structure. A million solar returns are exacted to purify the cerebral tenement sufficiently for manifestation of cosmic consciousness. A Kriya Yogi, however, by use of a spiritual science, removes himself from the necessity for a long period of careful observance of natural laws. Untying the cord of breath that binds the soul to the body, Kriya serves to prolong life and to enlarge the consciousness to infinity. The yoga technique overcomes the tug-of-war between the mind and the matter-entangled senses and frees the devotee to reinherit his eternal kingdom. He knows then that his real being is bound neither by physical encasement nor by breath, symbol of mortal man's enslavement to air, to nature's elemental compulsions. Master of his body and mind, the Kriya Yogi ultimately achieves victory over the last enemy, death. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death, once dead, There's no more dying then. Introspection, or sitting in the silence, is an unscientific way of trying to force apart the mind and senses tied together by the life force. The contemplative mind, attempting its return to divinity, is constantly dragged back toward the senses by the life currents. Kriya, controlling the mind directly through the life force, is the easiest most effective and most scientific avenue of approach to the infinite. In contrast to the slow, uncertain bullock-cart theological path to God, Kriya Yoga may justly be called the airplane route. The yogic science is based on an empirical consideration of all forms of concentration and meditation techniques. Yoga enables the devotee to switch off or on, at will, life-current to the five-sense telephones, of sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. Attaining this power of sense-disconnection, the yogi finds it simple to unite his mind at will with divine realms or with the world of matter. No longer is he unwillingly brought back by the life-force to the mundane sphere of rowdy sensations and restless thoughts. The life of an advanced Kriya yogi is influenced not by effects of past actions but solely by directions from the soul the devotee thus avoids the slow evolutionary monitors of egotistic actions good and bad of common life cumbrous and snail-like to the eagle hearts the superior method of soul living frees the yogi emerging from his ego prison he tastes the deep air of omnipresence the thraldom of natural living is, in contrast, set in a pace, humiliating. Conforming his life merely to the evolutionary order, a man can command no concessionary haste from nature. Though he live without error against the laws that govern his body and mind, he still requires a million years of masquerading incarnations to attain final emancipation. The telescopic methods of a yogi, disengaging himself from physical and mental identifications in favour of soul individuality, are therefore commended to those who eye with revolt a thousand thousand years. This numerical periphery is enlarged for the ordinary man, who lives in harmony not even with nature, does alone his soul. Pursuing instead unnatural complexities and offending in his thoughts and body the sweet sanities of nature. For him, two times a million years can scarce suffice for liberation. Gross man seldom or never realises that his body is a kingdom governed by emperor soul on the throne of the cranium with subsidiary regents in the six spinal centres or spheres of consciousness. This theocracy extends over a throng of obedient subjects. Twenty-seven thousand billion cells, endowed with sure if seemingly automatic intelligence by which they perform all duties of bodily growths, transformations and dissolutions, and fifty million substratal thoughts, emotions, and variations of alternating phases in man's consciousness in an average life, of sixty years. Any apparent insurrection in the human body or mind against Emperor Soul, manifesting as disease or irrationality, is due to no disloyalty among the humble subjects, but stems from past or present misuse by man of his individuality or free will, given to him simultaneously with the soul, and revocable never. Identifying himself with a shallow ego Man takes for granted that it is he who thinks, wills, feels, digests, meals, and keeps himself alive, never admitting through reflection, only a little would suffice, that in his ordinary life he is naught but a puppet of past actions, karma, and of nature or environment. Each man's intellectual reactions, feelings, moods, and habits are merely effects of past causes, whether of this or a prior life. Lofty above such influences, however, is his regal soul. Spurning the transitory truths and freedoms, the Kriya Yogi passes beyond all disillusionment into his unfettered being. The world's scriptures declare man to be not a corruptible body, but a living soul. In Kriya Yoga, he finds a method to prove the scriptural affirmation outward ritual cannot destroy ignorance because they are not mutually contradictory wrote shankara in his famous century of verses realized knowledge alone destroys ignorance knowledge cannot spring up by any other means than inquiry who am i how was this universe born who is its maker What is its material cause? This is the kind of inquiry referred to. The intellect has no answer for these questions. Hence, the rishis evolved yoga as the technique of spiritual inquiry. The true yogi, withholding his thoughts, will, and feelings from false identification with bodily desires, uniting his mind with superconscious forces in the spinal shrines, thus lives in the world as God hath planned. He is impelled neither by impulses from the past nor by fresh motivations of human witlessness. Receiving fulfilment of his supreme desire, he is safe in the final haven of inexhaustibly blissful spirit. Referring to the sure and methodical efficacy of yoga, Krishna praises the technological yogi in the following words. The yogi is greater than body-disciplining ascetics, greater even than the followers of the path of wisdom, jnana yoga, or the path of action, karma yoga. Be thou, O disciple, Arjuna, a yogi. Kriya yoga is the real fire rite oft extolled in the Gita. The yogi casts his human longings into a monotheistic bonfire, consecrated to the unparalleled God. This is indeed the true yogic fire ceremony, in which all past and present desires are fuel consumed by love divine. The ultimate flame receives the sacrifice of all human madness, and man is pure of dross. His metaphorical bones, stripped of all desirous flesh, his karmic skeleton bleached by the antiseptic sun of wisdom, inoffensive before man and maker, he is clean at last. Chapter 27 Founding a Yoga School in Ranchi Why are you averse to organizational work? Master's question startled me a bit. It is true that my private conviction at the time was that organisations are hornet's nests. It is a thankless task, sir, I answered. No matter what the leader does or does not do, he is criticised. Do you want the whole divine chana, milk curd, for yourself alone? My guru's retort was accompanied by a stern glance. Could you, or anyone else achieve God-communion through yoga if a line of generous-hearted masters had not been willing to convey their knowledge to others. He added, God is the honey, organisations are the hives, both are necessary. Any form is useless, of course, without the spirit, but why should you not start busy hives full of the spiritual nectar? His counsel moved me deeply. Although I made no outward reply, an adamant resolution arose in my breast. I would share with my fellows, so far as lay in my power, the unshackling truths I had learnt at my Guru's feet. Lord, I prayed, may Thy love shine for ever on the sanctuary of my devotion, and may I be able to awaken Thy love in all hearts. On a previous occasion, before I had joined the monastic order, Sri Yukteswar had made a most unexpected remark. How you will miss the companionship of a wife in your old age, he had said. Do you not agree that the family man, engaged in useful work to maintain his wife and children, thus plays a rewarding role in God's eyes? Sir, I had protested in alarm. You know that my desire in this life is only for the cosmic beloved. Master had laughed so merrily that I understood his words had been uttered merely to test me. Remember, he had said slowly, that he who rejects the usual worldly duties can justify himself only by assuming some kind of responsibility for a much larger family. The ideal of right education for youth had always been very close to my heart. I saw clearly the arid results of ordinary instruction, aimed at the development of body and intellect only. Moral and spiritual values, without whose appreciation no man can approach happiness, were yet lacking in the formal curriculum. I determined to found a school where young boys could develop to the full stature of manhood. My first step in that direction was made with seven children at Dihika, a small country site in Bengal, a year later in nineteen eighteen, to the generosity of Sir Manindra Chandra Nandi the Maharaja of Kasim Bazar, I was able to transfer my fast-growing group to Ranchi. This town in Bihar, about 200 miles from Calcutta, is blessed with one of the most healthful climates in India. The Kasim Bazar Palace in Ranchi became the main building of the new school, which I called Yogoda Satsanga Brahmacharya Vidyalaya. I organised a programme for both grammar and high school grades. It includes agricultural, industrial, commercial and academic subjects. Following the educational ideals of the Rishis, whose forest ashrams had been the ancient seats of learning, both secular and divine for the youth of India, I arranged that most class instruction be given outdoors. The Ranchi students are told yoga meditation and a unique system of health and physical development, Yogoda, whose principles I discovered in 1916. Realising that man's body is like an electric battery, I reasoned that it could be recharged with energy through the direct agency of the human will. As no action of any kind is possible without willing, man may avail himself of the prime mover, will, to renew his strength without burdensome apparatus or mechanical exercises. By the simple Yogoda techniques, one may consciously and instantly recharge his life-force, centred in the medulla oblongata, from the unlimited supply of cosmic energy. The boys at Ranchi responded well to Yogoda training, developing extraordinary ability to shift the life-force from one part of the body to another and to sit in perfect poise in difficult asanas, postures. They performed feats of strength and endurance that many powerful adults could not equal. My youngest brother, Bishnu Chalangosh, joined the Ranchi School. Later he became a noted physical culturist. He and one of his students travelled in 1938 and 1939 to the West, giving exhibitions of strength and muscular control. Professors at Columbia University in New York and at many other universities in America and Europe, were amazed by demonstrations of the power of the mind over the body. At the end of the first year in Ranchi, applications for admission had reached 2,000, but the school, which at that time was solely residential, could accommodate only a hundred. Instruction for day students was soon added. In the Vigilaya I had to play father-mother to the little children, and to cope with many organizational difficulties. I often remembered Christ's words, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now, in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. Shri Yotashwa had interpreted these words as follows. The devotee who foregoes the usual life experiences of marriage and family rearing in order to assume greater responsibilities, those for society in general, an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren, performs a work that is often accompanied by persecution from a misunderstanding world but such larger identifications help the devotee to overcome selfishness and bring him a divine reward. One day my father arrived in Ranchi to bestow a paternal blessing, long withheld because I had hurt him by refusing his offer of a position with the Bengal-Nagpur railway. Son, he said, I am now reconciled to your choice in life. It gives me joy to see you amidst these happy, eager youngsters, "'You belong here, rather than with the lifeless figures of railway timetables.' "'He waved toward a group of a dozen little ones who were tagging at my heels. "'I had only eight children,' he observed, with twinkling eyes. "'But I can feel for you.' "'With twenty-five fertile acres at our disposal, "'the students, teachers and I enjoyed daily periods of gardening and other outdoor work. "'We had many pets,' including a young deer that was fairly idolised by the children. I, too, loved the fawn so much that I allowed it to sleep in my room. At the light of dawn, the little creature would toddle over to my bed for a morning caress. One day, because some business would require my attention in the town of Ranchi, I fed the pet earlier than usual. I told the boys not to feed the fawn until my return. One lad was disobedient and gave it a large quantity of milk. When I came back in the evening, sad news greeted me. The fawn is nearly dead, through overfeeding. In tears, I placed the apparently lifeless pet on my lap. I prayed piteously to God to spare its life. Hours later, the small creature opened its eyes, stood up and walked feebly. The whole school shouted for joy. But a deep lesson came to me that night, one I can never forget. I stayed up with the fawn until two o'clock when I fell asleep. The deer appeared in a dream and spoke to me. You are holding me back. Please let me go. Let me go. All right, I answered in the dream. I awoke immediately and cried out, Boys, the deer is dying. The children rushed to my side. I ran to the corner of the room, where I had placed the pet. It made a last effort to rise, stumbled toward me, then dropped at my feet, dead. According to the mass karma that guides and regulates the destinies of animals, the deer's life was over, and it was ready to progress to a higher form. But by my deep attachment, which I later realized was selfish, and by my fervent prayers, I had been able to hold it in the limitations of the animal form from which the soul was struggling for release. The soul of the deer made its plea in a dream because, without my loving permission, it either would not or could not go. As soon as I agreed, it departed. All sorrow left me. I realised anew that God wants his children to love everything as part of him and not to feel delusively that death ends all the ignorant man sees only the unsurmountable wall of death, hiding, seemingly forever, his cherished friends. But the man of unattachment, he who loves others as expressions of the Lord, understands that at death the dear ones have only returned for a breathing space of joy in him. The Ranchi school grew from small and simple beginnings to an institution now well known in Bihar and Bengal, Many departments of the school are supported by voluntary contributions from those who rejoice in perpetuating the educational ideals of the rishis. Flourishing branch schools have been established in Midnapore and Lakanpore. The Ranchi headquarters maintains a medical department where medicines and the service of doctors are supplied without charge to the poor of the locality the number treated has averaged more than 18,000 persons a year. The Vidyalaya has made its mark too in competitive sports and in the scholastic field where many Ranchi graduates have distinguished themselves in later university life. In the past three decades, the Ranchi school has been honoured by visits from many eminent men and women of East and West. Swami Pranabananda, the Banaras saint with two bodies, came to Ranchi for a few days in 1918. As the great master viewed the picturesque classes under the trees and saw in the evening that young boys were sitting motionless for hours in yoga meditation, he was profoundly moved. Joy comes to my heart, he said, to see that Lahiri Mahashai's ideals for the proper training of youth are being carried on in this institution. My Guru's blessings be on it. "'A young lad sitting by my side "'ventured to ask the great yogi a question. "'Sir,' he said, "'shall I be a monk? "'Is my life only for God?' "'Though Swami Pranabananda smiled gently, "'his eyes were piercing the future. "'Child,' he replied, "'when you grow up, "'there is a beautiful bride waiting for you.' "'The boy did eventually marry.' after having planned for years to enter the Swami order. Sometime after Swami Pranabananda had visited Ranchi, I accompanied my father to the house in Calcutta in which the yogi was temporarily staying. Pranabananda's prediction, made to me so many years before, came rushing to my mind. I shall see you with your father later on. As father entered the Swami's room, the great yogi rose from his seat and embraced my parent with loving respect. Bhagavati, he said, what are you doing about yourself? Don't you see your son racing to the infinite? I blushed to hear his praise before my father. The Swami went on. You recall how often our blessed guru used to say, Banat, Banat, Banjai? So keep up Kriya Yoga ceaselessly and reach the divine portals quickly. The body of Pranabananda which had appeared so well and strong during my amazing first visit to him in Banaras, now showed definite ageing, though his posture was still admirably erect. Swamiji, I inquired, looking straight into his eyes, please tell me, aren't you feeling the advance of age? As the body is weakening, are your perceptions of God suffering any diminution? He smiled angelically. The Beloved is more than ever with me now. His complete conviction overwhelmed my mind and soul. He went on, ''I am still enjoying the two pensions, one from Bhagavati here and one from above.'' Pointing his finger heavenward, for a short time the saint was transfixed in ecstasy, his face lit with a divine glow. An ample answer to my question. Noticing that Pranabananda's room contained many plants, and packages of seeds, I asked their purpose. I have left Banaras permanently, he said, and am now on my way to the Himalayas. There I shall open an ashram for my disciples. These seeds will produce spinach and a few other vegetables. My dear ones will live simply, spending their time in blissful God-union. Nothing else is necessary. Father asked his brother-disciple when he would return to Calcutta. Never again, the saint replied. This year is the one in which Lahiri Mahashai told me I would leave my beloved Benares forever and go to the Himalayas, there to throw off my mortal frame. My eyes filled with tears at his words, but the Swami smiled tranquilly. He reminded me of a little heavenly child sitting securely on the lap of the Divine Mother. The burden of the years has no ill effect on a great yogi's full possession of supreme spiritual powers. He is able to renew his body at will. Yet sometimes he does not care to retard the ageing process, but allows his karma to expand itself on the physical plane, using his present body as a time-saving device to preclude the necessity of working out remaining fragments of karma in a new incarnation. Months later, I met an old friend, Sanandan, who was one of Pranabananda's close disciples. My adorable guru is gone, he told me amidst sobs. He established a hermitage near Rishikesh and gave us loving training. When we were pretty well settled and making rapid spiritual progress in his company, he proposed one day to feed a huge crowd from Rishikesh I inquired why he wanted such a large number. This is my last festival ceremony, he said. I did not understand the full indications of his words. Pranabhanandaji helped with the cooking of great amounts of food. We fed about two thousand guests. After the feast, he sat on a high platform and gave an inspired sermon on the infinite. At the end, before the gaze of thousands, He turned to me as I sat beside him on the dais and spoke with unusual force. Sanandan, be prepared. I am going to kick the frame. After a stunned silence, I cried loudly, Master, don't do it. Please, please don't do it. The crowd remained silent, wondering at my words. Pranabanandaji smiled at me, but his eyes were already beholding eternity. Be not selfish, he said, nor grieve for me. I have been long cheerfully serving you all. Now rejoice and wish me Godspeed. I go to meet my cosmic beloved. In a whisper, Pranabhanandaji added, I shall be reborn shortly. After enjoying a brief period of the infinite bliss, I shall return to earth and join Babaji you shall soon know when and where my soul has been encased in a new body. He cried again, Sanandan, here I kick the frame by the second Kriya Yoga. He looked at the sea of faces before us and gave a blessing. Directing his gaze inward to the spiritual eye, he became immobile. While the bewildered crowd thought he was meditating in an ecstatic state, he had already left the tabernacle of flesh and had plunged his soul into the cosmic vastness. The disciples touched his body, seated in the lotus posture, but it was no longer warm flesh. Only a stiffened frame remained. The tenant had fled to the immortal shore. As Sanandan finished his recountal, I thought, the blessed saint with two bodies was dramatic in his death as in his life. I inquired where Pranabananda was to be reborn. I consider that information a sacred trust, Sanandan replied. I should not tell it to anyone. Perhaps you may find out some other way. Years later I discovered from Swami Kashabananda that Pranabananda, a few years after his birth in a new body, had gone to Badri Narayan in the Himalayas, and there joined the group of saints— "'Around the Great Babaji. "'Chapter 28. "'Kashi Reborn and Discovered. "'Please do not go into the water. "'Let us bathe by dipping our buckets.' "'I was addressing the young ranchy students "'who were accompanying me on an eight-mile hike to a neighbouring hill. "'The pond before us seemed inviting, "'but a distaste for it had arisen in my mind.' Most of the boys began to dip their buckets, but a few lads yielded to the temptation of the cool waters. No sooner had they dived than large water-snakes wriggled around them. What shrieks and splashes! What comical alacrity in leaving the pond! We enjoyed a picnic lunch after we had reached our destination. I sat under a tree surrounded by the boys. Finding me in an inspirational mood, they plied me with questions. ''Please tell me, sir,'' one youth inquired, ''if I shall always stay with you on the path of renunciation?'' ''Ah, no,'' I replied. ''You will be forcibly taken away to your home, and later you will marry.'' Incredulous, he made a vehement protest. ''Only if I am dead could I be carried home.'' But in a few months his parents arrived to take him away, in spite of his tearful resistance. Some years later he did marry. After answering many questions, I was addressed by a lad named Kashi. He was about twelve years old, a brilliant student and beloved by all. Sir, he said, what will be my fate? You shall soon be dead. An irresistible power, it seemed, forced the words from my lips. The disclosure shocked and grieved me as well as everyone else. Silently rebuking myself as an enfant terrible, I refused to answer further questions. On our return to the school, Kashi came to my room. If I die, will you find me when I am reborn and bring me again to the spiritual path? he asked amid sobs. I felt constrained to refuse this difficult occult responsibility, but for weeks afterward Kashi pressed me doggedly. Seeing him unnerved to the breaking point, I finally consoled him. Yes, I promised. If the Heavenly Father lends his aid, I will try to find you. During the summer vacation, I started on a short trip. Regretting that I could not take Kashi with me, before leaving, I called him to my room and carefully instructed him to remain, against all persuasion, in the spiritual vibrations of the school. Somehow I felt that if he did not go home, he might avoid the impending calamity. No sooner had I left then Kashi's father arrived in Ranchi. For fifteen days he tried to break the will of his son, explaining that if Kashi would go to Calcutta for only four days to see his mother, he could then return. Kashi persistently refused. The father finally said he would take the boy away with the help of the police. The threat disturbed Kashi, who was unwilling to be the cause of any unfavourable publicity to the school. He saw no choice but to go. I returned to Ranchi a few days later. When I heard how Kashi had been removed, I entrained at once for Calcutta. There I engaged a horse cab. Surprisingly, as the vehicle passed beyond the Howrah Bridge, over the Ganges, the first persons I saw were Kashi's father and other relatives in mourning clothes. Shouting to my driver to stop, I jumped from the cab and glared at the unfortunate father. Mr. Murderer! I cried somewhat unreasonably, You have killed my boy. The father had already realised the wrong he had done in forcibly bringing Kashi to Calcutta. During the few days the boy had been there, he had eaten contaminated food, contracted cholera, and passed on. My love for Kashi and the pledge to find him after death, night and day, haunted me. No matter where I went, his face loomed up before me, I began a memorable search for him, even as long ago I had searched for my lost mother. I felt that, inasmuch as God had given me the faculty of reason, I must utilise it and tax my powers to the utmost in order to discover the subtle laws by which I could know the boy's astral whereabouts. He was a soul vibrating with unfulfilled desires, I realised, a mass of light floating somewhere amidst millions of luminous souls in the astral regions. How was I to tune in with him, among so many vibrating lights of other souls? Using a secret yoga technique, I broadcast my love to Kashi's soul through the microphone of the spiritual eye, the inner point between the eyebrows. I intuitively felt that Kashi would soon return to the earth, and that if I kept unceasingly broadcasting my call to him, his soul would reply. I knew that the slightest impulse sent to me by Kashi would be felt in the nerves of my fingers, arms and spine. Using my upraised hands as antennae, I often turned myself round and round, trying to discover the direction of the place in which I believed he had already been reborn as an embryo. I hoped to receive response from him in the concentration-tuned radio of my heart. With undiminishing zeal, I practiced the yoga method steadily for about six months after Kashi's death. Walking with a few friends one morning in the crowded Bao Bazaar section of Calcutta, I lifted my hands in the usual manner. For the first time, there was a response. I thrilled to detect electrical impulses trickling down my fingers and palms. These currents translated themselves into one overpowering thought from a deep recess of my consciousness I am Kashi. "'I am Kashi. Come to me.' "'The thought became almost audible "'as I concentrated on my heart radio. "'In the characteristic slightly hoarse whisper of Kashi, "'I heard his summons again and again. "'I seized the arm of one of my companions, "'Prakash Das, and smiled at him joyfully. "'It looks as though I have located Kashi. "'I began to turn round and round, "'to the undisguised amusement of my friends and the passing throng. "'The electrical impulses tingled through my fingers "'only when I faced towards a nearby path, aptly named Serpentine Lane. "'The astral currents disappeared when I turned in other directions. "'Ah!' I exclaimed. "'Kashi So must be living in the womb of some mother whose home is in this lane. "'My companions and I approached closer to Serpentine Lane.' the vibrations in my upraised hands grew stronger, more pronounced. As if by a magnet, I was pulled toward the right side of the road. Reaching the entrance of a certain house, I was astounded to find myself transfixed. I knocked at the door in a state of intense excitement, holding my very breath. I felt that my long and unusual quest had come to a successful end. The door was opened by a servant, who told me her master was at home. He descended the stairway from the second floor and smiled at me inquiringly. I hardly knew how to frame my question, at once pertinent and impertinent. Please tell me, sir, if you and your wife have been expecting a child for about six months? Yes, it is so. Seeing that I was a swami, a renunciant attired in the traditional orange cloth, he added politely, Pray inform me how you know my affairs. When he heard about Kashi, and the promise I had given, the astonished man believed my story. A male child of fair complexion will be born to you, I told him. He will have a broad face with a cowlick atop his forehead. His disposition will be notably spiritual. I felt certain that the coming child will bear these resemblances to Kashi. Later I visited the child whose parents had given him his old name of Kashi. Even in infancy, He was strikingly similar in appearance to my dear Ranchi student. The child showed me an instantaneous affection. The attraction of the past awoke with redoubled intensity. Years later, the teenage boy wrote me during my stay in America. He explained his deep longing to follow the path of renunciant. I directed him to a Himalayan master who accepted as a disciple the reborn Kashi.